Jeremiah 1, verses 1 through 19. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anath in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgment on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Now, gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, we, uh, we turn this time over to you. We turn this entire study of this marvelous book over to you. And we pray, Father, that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives through all the things that you show us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning, uh, we begin our study of the book of Jeremiah. And in case some of you are um, are panicking and thinking that that means that we're going to be in this book for the next five years, <laughs> as as Tom goes verse by verse through all 52 chapters, uh, I'll, I'll try to to ease your your anxieties a little bit. And I'll tell you that the approach that we're going to take will look at people and events and themes in the book rather than attempting to do a verse-by-verse exposition. Now, we're going to cover an awful lot of the content in the book over the time that we'll be doing this. And some of you are probably thinking, okay, then how many weeks will it be? And if anyone here is actually thinking that, that just tells me that they haven't been listening to me preach for very long because... (laughs) 
Otherwise, they would know that if I did give an answer to that question at this point, it would be completely pointless. By the time Jeremiah's prophetic ministry began, the 12 tribes of Israel that had descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been divided into two kingdoms. Uh, In fact, there were only a couple of generations of kings uh, under whom the, the nation was united. Israel, the northern tribes, uh, had already been taken away into captivity into Assyria by the time that, that Jeremiah began his ministry in earnest. There had been a, a very long and extended rout of northern Palestine by the Assyrian kings, and they had been taking people off into captivity for quite some time. And they had resettled the land with people who weren't originally from it. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the Levites who were among them, like Jeremiah, still enjoyed some degree of sovereignty as a nation. But God told them through Jeremiah that the time of Judah's kings was also coming to an end. And much more earth-shattering to the Judahites, through the prophet Jeremiah, God told them that the city of Jerusalem was going to come to an end as they knew it, and that the temple of Yahweh in the midst of Jerusalem was going to come to an end as they knew it. The relevance of this book to the church in the modern world cannot possibly be overstated. In Jeremiah's day, the, the deeply held expectations and traditions of the Hebrew people were being dashed. They had long before made a mockery of God's intentions for the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. They had thrown the worship of the one true God into a blender together with the worship of all their little insurance policy gods. All of the backup gods that they had embraced from the many nations that surrounded them. And yet they still held very tightly to the conviction that they were the favored people of Yahweh, the God who had brought them out of Egypt. That He was somehow okay with all of their spiritual infidelity against Him. They were still convincing themselves that they could carry on with life as usual and they could still depend on Yahweh to protect them and to bless them and provide for them. After all, the temple was in Judah, not Israel. Israel had been taken away into captivity, but but they thought they knew why and that it could never happen to them. The temple was in Judah. The priests in Judah were still Levites, as God had intended. The priests in Israel had long ago turned into a free-for-all, the priesthood, where it didn't matter what tribe you were from, you might still be able to be a priest. The promise of an enduring kingdom was given to the, to a descendant of David. And David was a Judahite. God promised David that his descendant would rule on his throne over his kingdom forever. So it was not possible. It was not possible that Judah could be destroyed, taken into captivity, that the temple could be ransacked. It was not thinkable. It's amazing how fiercely Judah held on to promises of the very God that they had been 
denying for so long by their actions. God was already turning up the heat under a boiling pot that he was about to pour out upon Judah and Jerusalem. And the judgment that he was going to bring, especially in the city, was more horrific than anything that the Hebrew people had ever experienced. Judah's complacency was going to die hard, but it would indeed die. Not so that God could could be done with them, but so that He might humble them in order to bring them back, to turn their hearts back to Him, that He might then restore them. That's what this book is about. That's what Jeremiah is about. Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet extended from the 13th year of Josiah's reign as king of Judah, and that was around 627 B.C., to the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. And I want to just kind of give you, I know that writing's too small for you to read, but up there in the, in the upper right is the very brief period of the United King, Kingdom. Then after Solomon, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the south were the kings that's, that began the, the two divided kingdoms. Uh, Israel became quite a mess. The kings were pretty much universally lousy. And by the time you got to the bottom here, you'll notice that the way this, these uh, lateral moves happen, that's because this guy killed this guy, and this guy killed this guy, and this guy had this son, and this guy killed this guy, and this guy killed this guy. <laughs> and that's how the kingdom progressed toward the end, right? In Judah, things were a little more orderly. There was some weirdness, but pretty much came down through. The kings descended from the line of David. And then we came to Josiah. And this is where the, this is where the ministry of Zechariah begins. And so I'm going to do a cutaway of that, that last section. Josiah had three sons, Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz, Zedekiah. Josiah was a good king. He ruled for 31 years. In Judah, he, he got rid of most of the trappings of, of Judah's idolatry. He, his priest, his high priest Hilkiah, found the book of the law of Moses. And when, when Josiah became aware that the book had been found, he tore his robes and he was filled with humble reverence, fear of the, of the one true God. He restored the Passover that had not been observed for Countless generations. But then Josiah died. His son Jehoahaz was put into position by uh, the king of Egypt. And Jehoahaz started to rebel just a little. He lasted a total of three months. And then he was taken away into captivity to Egypt. Jehoiakim, his brother, was then appointed actually by Nebuchadnezzar to rule over Judah. He changed his name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim lasted 11 years. But he was rebellious against God too. And then his son Jehoiakim took over, again appointed, and Jehoiakim lasted a total of three months. So two of those guys lasted three months each. And then came Zedekiah. And a whole lot of what happens in the book of Jeremiah is during the, the reign of Zedekiah. He reigned for 11 years. And during his 11-year reign, 
He had, he was appointed to that role by Nebuchadnezzar. He was supposed to rule over the people of Judah, really kind of the riffraff of what was left of Judah after most of the Judahites had been taken away into captivity. But Zedekiah got cocky and he decided that he too would raise his fist against Nebuchadnezzar. And the whole time that was happening, God was telling him, don't do that. Jeremiah's ministry lasts until about 586 B.C., actually a little afterward. And I won't go over that old chart, but in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. The walls were breached by Nebuchadnezzar's army. And the temple was ransacked. And the, and the wealth of Israel, whatever was left, was taken away. And Zedekiah was taken into captivity. Jeremiah was was preaching to this people during an amazingly turbulent time when things were falling apart from their perspective, when all the things that they had counted on were being threatened. And they didn't realize until Jeremiah started telling them that the threat was not Nebuchadnezzar, the threat was God. The one who was causing all of this to happen was, was God, and it was because of their continual spiritual adultery against the one who had redeemed them and declared them to be his covenant people. The layout of this book is not sequential. That's probably one of the most important things you can know about Jeremiah. It's not sequential. In fact, the last chapter, chapter 52, that recounts the fall of Jerusalem uh, reiterates a lot of stuff that was said in chapter 39 in which the fall of Jerusalem is presented. What you do see is these very broad categories. There's a, a, this is the kind of the top-level breakdown of the book. Chapter 1 is Jeremiah's commission, and that's what we're going to look at in more detail today. Chapters 2 through 45 is God dealing with Judah. Judgment is foretold against Judah, and much of it is fulfilled during Jeremiah's day. And then restoration is promised. And the passages of restoration are magnificent. And when we get to them, you'll realize that they are not just short-term. They are pointing to realities, to things that God is going to do and has yet done. They're pointing to the, to the, the coming kingdom of Messiah when He returns again. Chapters 46 to 51 is predominantly dealing with God and the nations. God turns his attention from Judah, his covenant people, to the pagan nations. And once again, he foretells judgment, he fulfills some judgment, and he promises restoration to some and destruction to others. And then finally in chapter 52 is a recap of the fall of Jerusalem, and I call this a re-minder, <laughs> a reminder to Judah that this God is, is to be taken seriously. The book is overwhelmingly weighted towards judgment. We talked about this some during the series we just finished on the Gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. The prophetic writings in the Old Testament are overwhelmingly weighted towards judgment. But there are passages regarding God's promises of restoration that are kind of mixed in. The three chapters in the book of Jeremiah that are the most heavily concentrated on the, on the issue of restoration are chapters 31 to 33. And again, when we get there, you'll see that they are magnificent. 
this waiting in the direction of judgment is not because God delights in judgment more than in salvation. In fact, this book of all the books of the Bible tells us exactly what God does with his whole heart and his whole soul. And judgment is not what he does with his whole heart and his whole soul. God judges because he must humble us in order to save us. And he has to break us of many illusions and attachments in order to humble us. Sinners are not easily humbled. Rebels against God are not easily humbled. And without that humbling, there is no turning to God. Let's talk about Jeremiah's assignment. In the first, very first part of the, of the chapter, God just identifies who Jeremiah is. Jeremiah kind of introduces himself here. Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Some would say, okay, he was a Benjamite. No, he was a Levite. His dad was a legit priest, Hilkiah. And the priests, the priests were spread out all over the land into all the different tribes. And these, he was of the priesthood that dwelled in the land of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the days of Josiah until the days of Zedekiah. Verse 4, verses 4 through 10, give us the heart of God's commission for Jeremiah. And we learn in the very first sentence of the words that God spoke to Jeremiah as he was commissioning him that, <laughs> that God had plans for this man long before this man existed. God says to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. I'll just very briefly mention as an aside, this is one of many passages in the Bible that tells us that the, that the womb is the domain of God. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God uses that same word again in verse 10. He says, see, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. We find out as the passage proceeds that that Jeremiah was a young man. And the word that's used could refer to a teenager. It could refer to a young man of marriageable age who's not yet married. But he's a young man. I would certainly call him a kid. (laughs) But that's because I'm old. And he told this kid, this, this young man, he'd said to him, I have appointed you over kingdoms and nations. I have appointed you to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. How would you like it if God said that to you? How would Jeremiah carry out such a, a world-altering assignment? The simple answer in this passage is that he would carry out the assignment by speaking the words that God put in his mouth. Now, how would you feel if God said to you, tell people what I tell you to tell them? It's a little different. See, Jeremiah announces and God accomplishes. The role, of, the role of God's messenger is not to change the world. The role of God's messenger is to speak the word. 
And God is the one who changes the world. God said that He touched Jeremiah's mouth and He said, I put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah's prophetic proclamation on God's behalf took three parts. First, he would present God's case against Israel, Judah, and the nations. We'll see in the next chapter that he brings a case. He brings a case against God's own people. He would announce God's judgment against Israel, Judah, and the nations. And he would also announce God's salvation for a remnant from Israel, Judah, and the nations. He told Jeremiah in the very first part of that that he appointed him over the nations. Not just over Israel and Judah. Over the nations. The people of the world. First, Jeremiah would present God's case against Israel, Judah, and the nations. God is going to have a whole lot to say in this book about the idolatrous practices of Israel and Judah, starting in the very next chapter, which we'll look at next time. But in the op- in, here in the opening chapter, in verse 16, God gives Jeremiah a one-sentence, big-picture summary of his accusation against Israel and Judah that Jeremiah was to proclaim on God's behalf. He says, verse 16, And I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me, and they have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. You'll see those two accusations many times in this book. They have forsaken me, and they have turned aside to worship and serve gods of their own making. It sounds a lot like Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was indicting all of mankind. And he said, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of animals and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then get this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature. And if you notice when you list the images that they made, it starts with man. And it's no coincidence that many of the the idols of Egypt that that, uh, bore the form of other animals had the bodies of humans. We're talking about a, what God is, is revealing there is that is man's, man's inclination towards self-worship at the expense of the Creator. Jeremiah would announce God's case against Israel, Judah, and the nations, and he would announce God's judgment against Israel, Judah, and the nations. God uh, gives Jeremiah two object lessons. Two, two different props that he uses. First is an almond branch. In the region of Judea where Jeremiah's own hometown resided, Anathoth, almond trees were plentiful. And every January toward the end of the month, after the winter dormancy, they would blossom with these beautiful white blossoms. And they were the first tree to blossom. The Hebrew name 
For the almond tree is shaked. And it's from a Hebrew word that means to be awake. No doubt that name was given to the tree because it was the first to awaken after winter dormancy. A close variant of that word is shaked and shoked. And shoked means to watch. To be awake, to watch. Those are very related words both in Hebrew and Greek. In this passage, God's, uh, God's using a little divine pun to make a vivid point with Jeremiah. God asked Jeremiah what he sees, and he says, I see the rod of an almond tree. And God says, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. I am watching over my word to perform it. God is awake, and God is watching. That is uh, no small point, beloved. God was going to give Jeremiah words of very dire warning to deliver to Judah. And he intended for Jeremiah to know with certainty that those warnings would not prove to be bark without bite. See, for the one who speaks prophetically on God's behalf, authority and certainty are inextricably connected. Authority and certainty are inseparable. When God declares that He's going to judge men if they do not turn to Him in faith and humble submission, He intends for that declaration to be believed. So He continually watches over His Word to perform it. When He warns of a judgment that will come if men do not repent, then if men do not repent, that judgment comes. If He says that He's going to judge men even if they do repent because the time for repentance has ended, then that judgment is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. And those prophecies are in this book too. And if He promises that after judging, He will turn the hearts of those whom He has judged and He will redeem and restore them, that promise is as certain as if it had already been accomplished. And those promises are in this book too. God is saying to Jeremiah, you just say what I tell you to say. I'll take care of proving to Judah that they should have taken you seriously. And I will do that by fulfilling every warning and every promise that I make to them through you. He's still doing that. To put it the way Isaiah, God put it, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God watches over His Word to perform it. And we get to be the bearers of that Word in this world. We'll talk about that in a minute. God's prop for His second object lesson for Jeremiah was a boiling pot. Now, if you came across an enormous pot of boiling water that was leaning in your direction, what would you do? Yeah, there you go. You at least get around to the other side of the pot, right? The second vision that God gave to Jeremiah was was that of an enormous pot of boiling liquid 
and it was leaning away from the north, and it was leaning toward the south, and to the south of the pot was Judah and Jerusalem. And God said to Jeremiah in verses 14 to 16, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. The kings of the north will come and they will camp out outside the gates of your cities until they have torn the walls down and taken you away. So, God tasked Jeremiah with presenting his case against his people, with announcing his judgment against his people and the nations, and finally, announcing his salvation of a remnant from among Israel, Judah, and the nations. It's interesting in this chapter when I talked about things weighted in the direction of, of judgment. That's real clear in this chapter because the sum total of everything that God says to Jeremiah in this opening chapter of the book regarding salvation, regarding the proclamation of his intention to build and plant is in one little phrase at the end of verse 10. To build and to plant. And that's it. That's it. In the midst of passage after passage declaring God's indictments against men, prophesying God's judgments against men, we find in this book and in all of the other prophetic books of the Old Testament God's declarations of a coming salvation, of redemption and restoration, of God making things new. And as I mentioned, the most concentrated passage in this book about that intention on the part of God is in chapters 31 to 33. But that restoration, beloved, does not come until after judgment. It doesn't come until after judgment. It's not instead of judgment. Let's consider Jeremiah's credentials. What qualified a boy to speak to priests and prophets and kings and people of Judah? That's who he says in the last three verses that he's supposed to talk to. Priests, prophets, kings, and the people. To tell them what God required of them and what would happen to them if they didn't do it, and then after a certain point to tell them that it was going to happen anyway because they waited too long. The only answer that you'll find in this passage, in fact, the only answer that you'll find in this book when it comes to what qualified Jeremiah to do those things is God. God qualified Jeremiah for this task. That's a marvelous truth for all of us. I've told you before that the, the, my theme passage for, for whatever ministry God ever does through me is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Every word of that is important. Our adequacy is God. Jeremiah's adequacy was God. That's where God starts with his commission to Jeremiah. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That should have told Jeremiah everything that he needed to know 
in order to confidently enter into the work that God had set before him. But instead, where did Jeremiah go? He started looking for other qualifications. He wanted other credentials because he didn't think that would cut it. And he said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Look at how that statement begins. Alas, Lord God. Lord is Adonai, means sovereign. The next one, the word God you'll see in many of your Bibles is capital G, capital O, capital D. That means it's Yahweh. Alas, Adonai, Yahweh. Sovereign, I am. Creator and sustainer of all things. The God of the universe. Sorry, God. God, sovereign God. Sorry, but... I think you missed something. You ever talk to God that way? Do you ever end up talking to God that way when you don't mean to? You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unless you're talking about accomplishing all that through me. And then we have something we need to discuss. How did God reply to Jeremiah's protest that he was too young and didn't know how to speak? I'm pretty much the same way he responded to Moses when Moses said, I am slow of speech. I'm the wrong guy. God said, Moses, Moses, who made your mouth? God didn't make the assignment any easier to accommodate Jeremiah's concerns about his own ability. In fact, God told him it was going to be an exceedingly, exceedingly hard assignment. Just like he had said to Isaiah. Listen, listen to what he says to Jeremiah in verses 17 to 19. He says, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them. That word means terrified. Lest I dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron, as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land, and they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jesus said to His disciples in this world, you will have tribulation, but do not fear. I have overcome the world. And God says, I'll fight for you. They're not your problem. I am. And I'm a marvelous problem to have. (laughs) God tells us all the time. I'm the one with whom you have to do. I'm the only one worthy of your fear. God tells us all the time. He told Jeremiah he would be fiercely opposed, but he didn't change the assignment. He said, okay, so it's time to tuck your robe up into your belt and get with it. I don't care how young you are. God has been using young men and young women in this world ever since He's been using people. Young, old, doesn't matter because it's not about us. It's about Him. God told Jeremiah... Many times, and through Jeremiah told the people who was worthy of fear and who wasn't, kings, princes, priests, and people weren't. God was. Jeremiah's indispensable armor in this grand battle for the souls of men 
would be rightly placed fear. Rightly placed fear. I want to talk for a moment about what his assignment wasn't. You will be very hard-pressed. You can go all the way through this book and you'll be very hard-pressed to find any time that God says to Jeremiah, be sensitive. Let people have their safe place. He never says, be careful not to offend. He never says, watch your words. You know, you need to be really careful that, that you're not overstating this. No, he says, you're going to pluck up and tear down. You're going to destroy and overthrow. And I'm the one who's going to do that through your words. Through your words. And they will be the words that I gave you to speak. He never tells Jeremiah, be eloquent. There's never any test of oratorical skills applied. The Apostle Paul says, I did not come to you with persuasive words of wisdom, flowery speech. I came to you knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that's all. God did not tell Jeremiah, beloved, He did not tell Jeremiah to be effective. He did not tell Jeremiah to turn the hearts of the people toward God. By the way, he told Isaiah that that wouldn't happen in Isaiah's ministry. They would be deaf and they would be blind to the truth. And that didn't change the assignment. And it doesn't change our assignment. God never says that we have to be eloquent. He never says that we have to be, sorry, sensitive. He never says that we have to be effective. He says that we have to say what He told us to say. doesn't mean we're supposed to run roughshod over people's feelings. The point is, the, the key assignment here is to speak the Word of God. Now, how does all this affect us? We're already bleeding over into that. Let's finish up by talking about that a little bit more. While God certainly still raises up men to preach His Word on His behalf, the prophetic role in the world today has been most fundamentally assigned by God to His church. The prophetic role in the world today has been most fundamentally assigned by God to His church. God did not say to Jeremiah, your missions, should you decide to accept it, is this. He said, here's your mission. I appointed you to this before you even were a glimmer in your father's eye. This is what you will do. And I have given you everything that you need to do it. I will be your sufficiency. And Jeremiah's assignment is now our assignment. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That promise is tied to that mission. Acts 1.8, he said to his disciples and to those who are gathered with them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And then in his great commission, Jesus told this, his same disciples to make other disciples and teach them to observe all that he had commanded them, which I would expect includes being his witnesses. You know what that means? It means tag 
we're it. You and I don't get to look around us and say, hmm, I wonder whom God will raise up to say the really hard stuff to this godless generation. We don't get to look around us and say, hmm, I wonder whom God will raise up to say the really hard stuff to His own people. Tag, we're it. In the book of Ephesians, how is it that God accomplishes the building up of the whole body of Christ into maturity in Christ to the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ Himself? He gives gifted people to the body, but He also says, by the effective working of every individual part of the body. That's how the body gets built up in love. That means every one of us is accountable to hold every one of us accountable. God's lesson for Jeremiah from the almond branch is as powerfully relevant to us today as it was in his day. God will watch over his word to perform it. One of the things that is sorely lacking in the modern church's witness for Christ is authority. A dear missionary that many of us know very well said to me recently, he said, the problem with our witness is we don't have authority. We don't speak with authority. We're too busy being politically correct. We're too busy being sensitive. We're too busy trying to make Christianity palatable to people who, have, who are shaking their fist at God. What God has commissioned all of us to do is in three parts. To present His case against men. To declare His judgment against sin and against sinners and to proclaim His salvation of all who will trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them. It's the same assignment. It's the prophetic assignment. It's the church's assignment. It's your assignment and mine. And it's ours together. When we declare to the world or to the church what God has Himself clearly declared in His Word, we can and we must do so with the authority that is befitting that which is absolutely true. And that means no apologies. It just means we say the truth, we speak the truth in love, and with no compromise. No faithful prophet of God ever said, I'm going to give you something to think about. And if it strikes you as reasonable, you might want to consider acting on it. No, they said, this is the word of the Lord. And He demands that you hear it and heed it and obey it. Our message, beloved, is not try Jesus. Our message is not consider Jesus. Our message is this is the Word of the Lord, the Creator of all that exists. Hear Him. Heed Him. Believe in Him. And obey Him. And you know what that means? If that's our assignment to tell people what God has said, then that means that what we need to be saying to people is what God has said, not what we have to say. Even though divine authority was intrinsic and is intrinsic to who Jesus is as the second, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus stayed on His Father's script. In John chapter 5, He says, I speak only what the Father gave me to speak. I do only what the Father gave me to do. If that was true of Jesus, how true do you think that needs to be for us? He said to Jeremiah, everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. And that's what God is saying to us, to his church today. We are his royal priesthood, the mediators of the truth of Jesus Christ in this world. 
And that's what we're supposed to talk to people about. Him. Because He's the way, the truth, and the life. We're not supposed to talk to them about our politics. We're, we're not supposed to... Our, our, our mission, beloved, I'm not saying don't talk about politics. Our mission is not to turn people to our politics. Our mission is not to turn people to our favorite music. Our mission is not to turn people away from our traditions. Even when we call those traditions Christian, our mission is to speak the truth about Jesus Christ to people and to each other. He says to us, go and say to every man and woman and child that God has spoken. And here's what he has said. And then to tell them what he has said. And we know where to go to find it, right? We're to say it boldly. We're to say it with authority. We must be saying the same things that the Holy Spirit has been saying through His Word for countless generations. We must speak of sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption without compromise, without adjustment, without fear. We must not be deterred or dismayed when people despise our youth or our old age or our lack of eloquence or even our stammering and stuttering. We must not be deterred or dismayed when they fight against us with all their might. We must not be deterred or dismayed when they seek to arrest us or even to kill us. Jesus said that they would certainly do both. Rightly placed fear will be our shield of faith in this grand battle for the souls of men. Fear and faith are two sides of the same coin when they're directed toward God. The only one who will ever be worthy of your fear or mine is the one who sent his own beloved son to die in our place to make us his own treasured possession forever (laughs) and to make us his agents in the world right now. Our God will surely be with us to deliver us just as he said he was with Jeremiah until the day that he appointed for each of us to draw our last breath on this earth and to enter into his presence forever. And you know what? Until that day, for every single one of you, until that day, nobody is a threat to you. No no part of creation is a threat to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And when that day comes, you will step right into that love in full bloom. Until that day, God will continue to build His church upon the rock whose name is Jesus and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Dear Father, thank You for taking hold of reluctant warriors like Jeremiah and like us and making us the bearers in this world of Your life-giving Word. And thank You, Father, for making making us bearers of Your life-giving Word to each other. May Your Word richly dwell within our hearts and may we build each other up in the knowledge of the one true God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, because You are our life. Make us faithful to proclaim what You have said and nothing else. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.